Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Um, a, a few weekends ago, um, I was um, holidaying with um, a classic car club, which is one of my uh, interests. And we had a trivia night competition between a, a couple of the car clubs. And one of the uh, questions was, what ancient art form is um, associated with DNA? And the answer was origami. And um, uh, as we uh, found out, and it was all to do with the folding, and it was to do with um, the interesting fact, of course, that DNA um, has to be folded. And I thought, well, this is interesting. That was a, a question just in a, um, you know, a, 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 a trivia night uh, question. That was actually, you know, had a bit had a bit of science to it because the questions were thought up by the different members of the two clubs, and it was car clubs, and it was part of a, a, a competition. And um, then, just immediately after getting back to uh, from the car club, I um, had to fly interstate and had meetings at uh, a couple of leading universities, leading Australian universities. Um, in one, I had to um, uh, present uh, some uh, certificates for research awards for postgraduate students um, in the area of agriculture and um, and food food research. And it was interesting. Though, I was talking to some of the students and talking to some of the professors. Uh, remember, when I was talking about answers to prayer and. The, uh, one of the comments from one of the professors was, well, you know, that was lucky. Those, those guys have had, a, um, you know, luck. They've, they've been lucky. And I was referring to a book um, that uh, I edited or referring to some stories in a book that uh, I'd edited uh, called On the Seventh Day, 40 um, Scientists and Academics Explain Why They Believe in God. And that book, of course, is still available in, in, in bookshops and uh, on Amazon and so forth. And for that book, I'd actually written to a number of scientists, all who had been educated at um, state-type universities and uh, who also taught at state-type universities. So they weren't, hadn't been educated in, in religious-based uh, or church-based universities. And it's interesting, these uh, scientists and academics uh, give uh, their reasons why they choose to believe in God, and many of them involve personal answers to prayer and, and God's leading in, in their lives, and, uh, and also the overwhelming evidence for a creator, and particularly for intelligent design in, in nature, and Again, as I looked at you know so much of the the research we're doing in the area of agriculture and um, and uh, one of the hot topics uh, that was associated uh, in the panel discussion that I was involved with had to do with climate change and uh, you know the changing climates and how that affects the economics of agriculture and uh, and also some of the aspects of um, you know the scientific research that's being done to um, uh, that's involved in this area. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how the academia is so heavily steeped 
in this theory of evolution and long ages. And yet the evidence for intelligent design is overwhelming. You know, for example, if we if we look at the uh, the Earth and our environment, um, and as I said, this uh, this uh, research conference um, where the the students from uh, the the university were presenting their their research uh, findings to date was a lot of focus on the you know the the systems of the earth and ecology this sort of thing and yet um, the there was a book that was written you know 120 years ago back in the early 1900s by dr henderson professor henderson on the fitness of the environment it's amazing how and he, he had recognized uh, the evidence that we have that our environment is just so tuned for life. And, you know, just take the, the, the common example that is around us all the time of, of, of water freezing. Water, when it freezes, just before it gets to freezing point at about four degrees Celsius, begins to expand due to the, the structure of the, and the chemical bonding in water. And as a result, the colder water floats on the surface and uh, then it freezes over. And so um, this then preserves the marine life that would be in the pond or lake um, and helps preserve the life. And it, it's, it's an amazing and a, a u- unique feature of water that suddenly, even though the temperature is cooling and, and the water is shrinking, 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 um, but then it begins to expand so that it floats. And this evidence for design is is just everywhere that so many aspects of nature are designed just to work. Um, there was a, a, a book published in the late 1980s called The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. It's published by Oxford University Press and the authors were J. Barrow and F. Tipler. And essentially... These scientists, um, again, identified that there was that the Earth and the solar system that we're in had certain features that were just tailor-made to support life, and they had identified more than 250 optimised design requirements that a planet must have for carbon-based life. And... Um, it included, for example, a robust but customised atmosphere with appropriate quantities of water uh, that could be in the various phases, both ice, liquid and vapour, um, and an ideal range of surface temperatures and a period on its uh, rotation that was finely tuned. And that was one of the things that these authors pointed out, that so much is, is just finely tuned. Um, it, um, you know, it had the Earth and our system has all the hallmarks of incredible intelligent design. Like, even when we look at the sunlight from the uh, the light from the sun, the light that a star emits depends on its mass. Now, in the case of the sun, this 
the light that it produces is just in the right range for photosynthesis. If it was shifted a little bit more to the red or a little bit more to the blue, the photosynthetic reaction, which is essential for plants producing carbohydrates from carbon dioxide and oxygen, just uh, wouldn't work and uh, and again wouldn't they uh, wouldn't be producing the light giving oxygen anywhere near as efficiently as they do and um, and you know another factor is if if the sun was more massive um, the radiation from the sun would um, overwhelm the defensive effects of the Earth's magnetosphere, magnetosphere, the, the effects, the magnetic fields produced by the Earth's uh, magnet that we have, this magnet, giant magnet that we have uh, uh, in the Earth with the North and South Pole and the magnetic field that is produced. And so, again, this radiation, again, would be harmful to life or um, depending or could even strip away the atmosphere. Um, on the other hand, too, um, if it was a, a much smaller star, stars of very low mass tend to be unstable and can often emit flares that, again, would strip the flares of you know uh, particles and energy that would, again, strip the, uh, the atmosphere of, of uh, any planets that were close enough to be habitable. And so our sun is actually, for its size also, is, is actually amazingly stable. And um, again, if you have a star like our sun, there's only a limited range of distances from it within, um, you know, from which uh, an orbiting planet could potentially be uh, habitable. Um, I mean, if the sun would... Uh, was less massive, you know, if it was much smaller, then the range of habitable distances would be even even smaller. Um, and um, again, any planet with that close um, would um, also suffer probably from tidal locking. That is the, where the force of gravity between it and the sun is very strong, meaning that one side of it would be locked into continually facing the sun. That would give you a really extreme temperatures on one side, too hot for life probably, and then too cold for most life on the other side. And so it's it's interesting that uh, these scientists and there was another book that was published um, uh, in the early two thousands. That's right, two double o four by uh, G. Gonzalez and J. Richards uh, that was called the Privileged Planet. And they argue again that the Earth's distance from the sun seems to be so precisely balanced that it allows for this really stable water cycle. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's fascinating too that even just the atmosphere around um, our planet is just at the right density that it allows water vapour to condense and then float as the clouds um, when I was uh, flying back home the other day, uh, looking out over the the clouds, um, I, w- I was thinking about this and how the density of the air is just right to allow birds to fly, for us to make planes that can fly, um, and it creates winds. There are winds there. And while we can get strong winds and, you know, we can have these very damaging hurricanes, they're not – we do survive them. 
And um, again, there's just so much that the the nature of our atmosphere, the the composition of it, the ratio of oxygen to nitrogen and so forth, allows fire to burn, but without it burning really too fast um, and not too slow either. It it just seems to be just the right uh, level there. I can remember uh, when I was a um, uh, a, a cadet scientist, I had the job of commissioning a, ga- a gas analyzer. Uh, the company that uh, I was working for, BHP, now the world's largest mining company. Back then, they were one of the largest, well, the largest steelmaker in the southern hemisphere, and they were looking at uh, developing fuel cells um, that ran directly on natural gas. And uh, we were doing experiments um, looking at uh, and measuring the composition of natural gas from a number of resources that BHP held. And we just um, received a new gas analyzer, and my job was to commission it. And one of the uh, gases that we analyzed for um, that um, is in uh, uh, the natural gas reserves that we had was hydrogen. And, of course, I said, well, you know, I knew the molecular stoichiometry of uh, hydrogen, so of, um, of hydrogen and oxygen. And so I thought, right, well, if we have, you know, equal uh, molar amounts of hydrogen and oxygen, no worries, we'll get a complete reaction. Uh, I hadn't bothered to read the instructions that said, make sure there's no more than 5% oxygen Otherwise, you will get an explosion. Well, of course, you know, I had 50% oxygen and the result was a very large explosion. Uh, Fortunately, no one was helped and fortunately, the equipment was designed for the explosive gases to be released without demolishing the equipment. So, um, but again, it made me realise as I was thinking about this time uh, that So many things are just finely tuned, and if we don't get them just perfectly right, they don't work. Things don't work properly, and I think this is something that many scientists don't appreciate in terms of the fine-tuning. And this, um, so many things in our atmosphere and environment are fine-tuned, life would not exist. And for these to all occur by coincidence, you know, like, um, you know, some people try to argue with answers to prayer where you were just lucky, you know, it was just a coincidence. I think when we look at um, the overall, um, you know, effects that are happening, um, I think that the, the evidence for the intervention of a supernatural, all-powerful God is overwhelming. And just recently I was reading about another factor too, and that is the folding of DNA that I referred to um, easier. Now, when we look at um, uh, DNA, and of course um, the um, DNA, as we know, is uh, deoxyribonucleic acid, um, and this is a a giant molecule um, that is made up of um, a number of compounds, but it contains some coding um, compounds or their their coding uh, uh, chemical types called adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine, A, T, C and G, they're abbreviated. 
that, and these are, are four chemical structures that actually constitute a chemical language. And on the basis of this chemical language, using a ribosome, a ribosome can take those letters and from those letters use that code to assemble proteins and make the structures of the cell so that it can, um, yeah, can reproduce. It's an amazing system. It's an it's a information-storing mechanism involving a chemical molecule. And so, for example, in your human you know, DNA, there's about 3 billion of these particular um, chemical letters, so to speak. Um, and um, our cells, of course, contain two complete copies, one we inherited from our mum and one from our, our dad. And um, it's interesting that if you stretched out DNA in, in a single, uh, the DNA in a single cell as a long strand, it would be about two metres long. And um, yet this DNA can actually fit in the cell. Now, the reason is it folds. It folds up. And um, one of the fascinating features about it um, uh, folding, uh, it's being really explored just recently as we've uh, developed um, a lot of computer modelling. And so all, all, as I was saying, all living things have, we have these proteins in our cells that are made up uh, of amino acids in a particular sequence, and this sequence is specified by the DNA instructions for making this. And then this chain is then folded to enable it to perform a particular function. Um, and so not only is the DNA itself folded up, but many of these amino acids themselves have to be folded in a particular way um, for their chemistry to work. And um, the, for example, um, a number of there are complex biomolecular machines that actually transport the substances within our cells called kinesins. And um, these are made up of uh, chains that are folded into a three-dimensional structure that um, gives it its unique structure and, and function. Um, and so um, a kinesin cell um, can actually transport little bags of proteins um, along um, uh, particular filaments um, that actually carry these particular parts to where these particular protein parts for assembly to where they're needed in the cell. Now, one of the uh, challenges for scientists to have been working on for decades is trying to actually work out how these shapes conform and, um, and how they're folded. And it's amazing that the cells fold these proteins in a particular way. Um, in 2020, the Google's DeepMind program called AlphaFold 
used artificial intelligence trained on an extensive protein structure database to actually solve protein structures. Um, and if you want to read about this, um, you can look up about the um, Google's DeepMind uh, program. Um, there was an article published on nature.com on the 30th of November 2020 uh, by E. Calaway, C-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, and uh, the title of the article was called It Will Change Everything, Deep Minds, Artificial Intelligence Makes Gigantic Leap in Solving Protein Structures, Google's Deep Learning Program for Determining the 3D Shapes of Proteins Stands to Transform Biology, Say Scientists. Um, Another uh, article that was published in Nature.com uh, on the 17th of February 2021 um, in the NPJ uh, Quantum Information um, by A. Roberts and three others uh, was called Resource Efficient Quantum Algorithm for Protein Folding. So the journal is called NPJ Quantum Information. And then another article that's been published on this that um, those listeners may be interested in looking up was published on the site medium.com on the 20th of August 2021 uh, by R. L-E-T-Z-T-E-R, and it was called A Novel Quantum Algorithm for Protein Folding, Paving the Way Towards Solving One of the Biggest Mysteries in Biology with Quantum Computers. And so I think this gives um, you a bit of an idea of the fascinating problem of trying to understand how these amazing folding systems could originate by chance. Um, the um, IBM uh, research scientist and uh, one of the authors of... Um, the second paper I mentioned, explains the, um, that folding is, uh, is a, an exponential problem. It, it, it's huge. As each additional bond occurs in the chain becomes, uh, in other words, as the chain of the protein becomes longer, it becomes more and more difficult to fold. And uh, soon it would become almost impossibly complex. Um, and it's interesting, back in 1969, a molecular biologist by the name of Cyrus Levininthal estimated that if cells took every tri-possible approach, they would take longer than billions of years, claimed by evolutionary age of the universe, to complete one fold. And this is actually known as Levinthal's paradox. I'll spell that name for you because I'm not very good at pronouncing it. It's L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L, apostrophe S, paradox. So again, you can look that up. And again, this is just one of the other aspects that we have that points to creation, supernatural creation for living systems. We're talking about these uh, proteins that are involved, encoded for in the DNA and the folding of DNA itself um, to work out a fold, of, particularly on these long molecules that are going to work 
that that works, that enables the molecule still to be active, to carry out its particular specific chemical function with the combinations available uh, on those long molecules is just enormous. And yet everything works and there are so many of these molecules that have all lined up. They've all folded just right. They all work. They work in these really complex system, systems. And it's interesting that uh, trying to work this out, they have used both artificial intelligence and you know quantum computers. It's interesting. In uh, 2021, the IBM's Quantum, a computer that... A computer at the cutting edge of this new technology managed to simulate the folding of a protein. It used 22 quantum bits or qubits. These are analogous to a bit in ordinary computing, adding a qubit doubles the processing power. So 22 of them are 4 billion times faster than a single qubit. And... um, the uh, so it's amazing computing programs that are used. Now it's interesting. Um, the program statistically sampled combinations to see which would re- result in the lowest energy state, as this would reflect the real world where molecules move to lower energy states, the most stable. Um, and this feat involved. They only used a protein that only had 10 amino acids called uh, angiostensin, and which constricts blood vessels and elevates blood pressure. And um, it's uh, um, amazing that uh, I had to use this very complex computer to work out, and that's such a, a simple protein with just 10 amino acids. When we think of um, the uh, design, for example, of uh, the uh, the kinesins that um, have these special structures and and so forth, um, that uh, are involved and affect the the programming of the and how these particular codes work, enabling them to perform their tasks, is amazingly complex. Um, and if protein folding doesn't occur, life can't exist. But it's interesting, um, the DNA and other machinery that is guiding this folding needs already folded proteins in order to exist and operate. And so here we have the classic chicken and egg conundrum for evolution. Um, that So it's quite clear that... Any living thing must have been able to perform this incredible feat of being able to fold these proteins just the right way to achieve the lowest energy levels right from the moment they were created. So again, when we look at the big picture of the structure of our planet, everything is designed. When we look, go down to the molecular structures in living systems, just to the way the molecules that make up living systems have folded, we can say there's overwhelming evidence of design. But more than that, these complex systems had to have this immediately as soon as they were made alive. No time for evolution whatsoever. Absolutely no time. So we have powerful evidence for a super-intelligent creator God. 
Remember, if you want to check these uh, references out and follow up on these uh, topics, um, that uh, just Google uh, 3ABN Australia, that's all one word, .org.au and click on the listen uh, button and or the radio button and uh, go to the program Faith and Science. And um, remember too to tell your friends and put links up to these programs on social media so that other people can become aware of the growing evidence that we have for intelligent design and creation. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.